Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Well, hey everyone, welcome into the show. We are uh, jumping into text issues in a sense. We're not going to go through verse by verse today, but we have a really exciting guest on, to as, as we have on, and this is the first guest we've had in, Revel, in the Revelation series. Uh, so I'm excited to engage in this. Today is going to be Holy Spirit Day. So today's the day we uh, we become, it, it, in my reformed self, I got to put my charismatic Pentecostal hat on because we're going to, it's going to be a pneumatology day. But uh, Rob, why don't you go ahead and introduce, introduce our guest? All right. We are so pleased to have Dr. Dana Harris uh, with us. She's a professor of New Testament and the chair of the New Testament department and Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where she's been uh, since 19, what year was it, Dana? 1997. 1997. And I started teaching soon after that. All right, very good. Hmm. She specializes in the Epistle of the Hebrew to the book to the Hebrews, as well as the Book of Revelation. She's the author of numerous works, including an introduction to biblical Greek grammar, a commentary on the Book of Hebrews, and she's also been a contributor to the NIV Study Bible for the 2015 version. She's currently working on a number of projects related to the Book of Revelation, including a paper on the Holy Spirit in the Book of Revelation. She's contributed numerous articles to editorial volumes, theological dictionaries, and academic journals, and she's been the editor of the Trinity Journal since 2010. Prior to coming to Trinity, uh, Dr. Harris was the managing editor of the Hoover Digest, a quarterly academic journal covering public policy, economics, and foreign affairs, published by the Hoover Institution of Stanford University. She coordinated a program funded by the Pew Charitable Trust that brought young diplomats from the former Soviet satellite countries to Stanford for four-month study programs. So Dana, it's great to have you with us. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Let's just begin, Dana, um, just giving us an opportunity, giving you an opportunity to kind of tell your story a little bit, who you are, your background, where you're at and what's going on and kind of just fill us in with whatever details you want to fill us in with. Sure. Um, I was born and raised in San Diego, uh, which I always joke prepared me well for Midwest winters. Um, (laughs) And I like to tell people I've been here 26 winters. So uh, that's how I mark them. I was not raised necessarily in a Christian home, a nominal Christian. Hmm. I became a believer when I was 15 at a Billy Graham crusade. Wow. Um, but I was raised Catholic, and so I didn't really know much about the Protestant world. Um, my junior year, I went to Paris. I studied in Paris, and I joked that that was my introduction to denominations because I went to a French-speaking Pentecostal church that was swinging from the rafters, slain in the spirit. Um, but they loved me, and they would invite me over for lunch. And then I went to a French-speaking Baptist church because it had solid <laughs> preaching, but nobody even greeted me. And then I went to an English-speaking Anglican church just so I could get English fellowship. So wow. that's how I did wow. jump in and learn about Protestant denominations. Um, I ended up in a non-denominational church for 20 years. Um, it was a church that was started by Ray Stedman. Okay. Um, and so and I went through their church intern program and worked with junior high kids for a number of years. I always joke that if you can teach junior high kids, you can teach anyone, anywhere, anytime. And then I actually was thinking about going, well, I I double majored in international relations in French because I was going to go in the State Department. Okay. But my time in Paris helped me to realize that I probably wouldn't have as much freedom to be involved in ministry things Mm -hmm. if I were with the State Department. So then I started thinking about nonprofits or mission organizations did a number of short-term mission kinds of things in the former Soviet bloc. So mm-hmm. um, smuggling in Bibles and vitamins and other kinds of things like that. Into oh, so you're a criminal. Yes, I am. I am. <laughs> I admit. I admit. 
eventually, long story short, I uh, was at a real juncture in my life and I pretty much said, Lord, I'll go anywhere mm. um, except because there's always exceptions. Yeah, so, so, yeah, yeah, anywhere yeah, in the world, except, except the Midwest, Los Angeles or the Midwest. So of course, okay. <laughs> the Midwest. And I never thought that I would be a seminary professor. That was just not on my radar at all. Yeah, yeah. But eventually I just realized that that kind of brought everything I love together. I love mm. God's word. I've always been passionate about teaching. Um, I, in the past decade or so, I've done a quite a bit of preaching and I really enjoy that a lot. I preach wow. regularly in my church. And so I just, I don't know, seminary, just it's, it's such a joy to be able to equip people to go out for what God's called them to do. All right, Dana. So one of the things that we've done when we interview guests uh, and for the book of Revelation specifically, we're going to ask them, uh, what is their take on the big on how they see the big picture of the book? What are the you know, are there themes or uh, a central theme or multiple themes or, and all that from from your perspective as a scholar on the book? You know, how what take do you have? How do you how do you engage the book? Yeah, so this is kind of my elevator speech on what I think John was doing. I start by talking about the Roman um, narrative. So the Romans had a really comprehensive narrative. They were the center of the universe Mm. um, because of the Pax Romana, the the peace that they brought in. They really were the whole power that sustained the universe. And so they have this very extensive narrative. And I think what John is doing is he's exposing that as a counterfeit narrative. And basically what John is, is pointing out in multiple ways, but very simplistically, there was one king and there's one kingdom mm-hmm. and anything else is a counterfeit. So what John is consistently doing is exposing the Roman narrative as a counterfeit. And even in some places, particularly when you get into chapters 12 and 13, showing that not only is it counterfeit, but the right. power behind the Roman empire is demonic. Right. Right. Dana, I'm, we're, just so, since we're on this here, if I don't mind me asking, uh, we're going to def- definitely delve into this as we go through the book of Revelation quite a bit. But do you mind fleshing out a little bit what you mean by that Roman narrative? What can you can you put some flesh and bones to it a little bit? Sure, sure. I mean, I always start with Domitian's um, second son. Yeah, so I like to start with um, Domitian and his second son. When his second son died, he issued a coin that most people have seen or can be reasonably familiar with, and it shows a globe and it shows a little baby sitting on the globe, and then there are seven stars or maybe the sun and the moon and five stars, five planets. Mm-hmm. It's debated as to what exactly those little X's are, but let's just call them stars, are swirling around the baby on the globe. So if you unpack that narrative, it's basically saying that the Roman emperors are the center of the universe. And because of the deification after they're dead, then it's they're uh, perpetuating and the, or sustaining the ongoing operation of the universe. So that's one way I would say a lot of other iconography. If you go to one place I think about that's really interesting would be like an aphrodisias in the western part of Turkey. There's a museum that shows all of these statues of women and they're all the same size but they're all wearing native dress Mm. and so if you unpack that narrative it's basically saying yeah you can be a part of the roman empire but you're going to conform to the size and standard of the roman empire but we'll preserve your ethnic identity but you're really you know you've you've become something because now you're part of the roman empire outside Mm. of the roman empire there's nothing it's it's right. barbarians. It's, it doesn't even exist. The Ukimene, the the world is mm-hmm. the Roman Empire. So that's one of the ways that I would unpack that is that that narrative that the Romans constructed 
of the eternal city, all of the ways that they were telling people that they were the center of the universe. And again, that they really sustained the universe. And if the Roman empire went down, the universe goes down. And again, I know we didn't bring you on to discuss this because we want to discuss the Holy Spirit, but but this is so good because I, it's something that we're going to definitely unpack as we proceed. But if you don't mind me asking again, also then, can you flush that out also what that might mean for the average Christian? Because obviously Rome authenticated that narrative with a religious authentication saying the gods have put us in place to maintain the Pax Romana, maintain the peace of Rome. So how did that flush out or what did that mean for the average person in the Roman Empire and therefore the conflict that the Christians were encountering? Yeah, I mean, I would say that there's probably two ways that a Christian would encounter this. Most people have a perception that the believers in Revelation were all persecuted, and that's just simply not true. Hmm. I think if we look at Smyrna, of course, they're facing some kind of persecution. But I think the real danger for Christians and how this would flesh out for the average Christian was really the danger of becoming very complacent or complicit with the Roman system. Um, So if you look at the Laodiceans, I mean, they're very wealthy, thank you very much, because they are not opposing Rome. Mm -hmm. I mean, Laodicea itself was fabulously wealthy and could suffer earthquakes and rebuild without any Roman assistance. But I think that impacted the church, too, that the church had a real sense of self-sufficiency. And so in some respects, that's kind of, I think the average Christian would be far more tempted, I think, to just go along and not be critical of the Roman Empire or really understand that narrative. And usually when I'm teaching this and thinking about contemporary application, what I try to help people realize is that we're living with counterfeit narratives all the Mm -hmm. time. Yes. And part of what we need to do as believers is to learn how to recognize and unpack and decipher, decode, so to speak, the counterfeit narratives that we're living with. Because we're, I would say there's the parallel between first century believers and us is we're living in a world that's telling us everything but there is one king and one kingdom. Yep. Yep. So. Well, and Dave and Dana, even when you were uh, discussing the idea of Pax Romana, which, you know, you, you can't not study first century Roman culture and not come across that, right? Uh, and so I'm, I'm familiar with that. But even bridging it to our context, I'm thinking like, oh, this is almost like what we would consider manifest destiny in a different sort of way. We Christianize the Prox Romana and it's like, oh, but it's God now working through America. And so we could do what we want and God's holding us in a special kind of way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the biggest contemporary applications I think that comes out of is the counterfeit narrative of Christian nationalism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 We did a couple episodes with David Crump and others on this Mm -hmm. topic also as well. I think there's more, more to it as well. And just as a commercial information for those of you guys that are listening, I have been doing a Zoom Bible study for a number of weeks now. The, the Bible study is being recorded and placed on the on my YouTube page, so you can go watch the studies there as I lead to the a study to the book of Revelation. And the episode that I'll be recording tonight, which means obviously it'll be two weeks or a couple weeks afterwards for you guys that are listening, uh, is on Revelation 17 and 18, where we're going to discuss the heart of Babylon. And the reality is the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, came at the expense of a lot of people. It oh, came. They, they brought peace by bringing bloodshed to everybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, you will conform, and and you will suffer if you don't. So, uh, and in this, in many ways, kind of t- tying into what Vinny said, we brought the Pax Romana to America by slaughtering the Native you know, Americans. You know, mm-hmm. there, there's there's a lot more similarities than we think. And I think what you're saying, Dan, and I, I think you would agree with this. And if you don't, uh, feel free to jump in. But what we've done with this American Christian narrative, we've we've Christianized it and therefore justified it. And it's 
and it's a, it's a narrative of violence and bloodshed and prejudice and racism and discrimination and gender uh, uh, discrimination. Yet we've justified it because, well, we must be blessed by God because look at our wealth and, and power and things of that nature. Well, I agree completely with that. And I would say also what we don't recognize is that our wealth came from a, an infinite source or a seemingly mm-hmm. infinite source right. of free labor. Free labor. Yep, exactly. And I mean, yep. if you have free labor, exactly. how can you not become wealthy? I mean, exactly. I just think that. And yet we boast of our wealth as if it were something that, you know, we did apart from mm-hmm. all of the benefit of slavery. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So, um, but back to our regular schedule. <laughs> program. Back, to, back to the Roman empire, because the Roman yeah. empire was also dependent on slavery. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. yes, right. As many so. as yeah. 60 million slaves is the number yep. that I've heard. I'm not sure if you've heard any, a number anything different. Yeah. yeah. 60 million. Slaves. And we'll, when we get to Revelation 17 and 18, which for Vinny and I might be in a, in a year, the reality is John lists the goods and commodities that come out of the heart of Babylon which I think Balcom is right that there's 28 items in the list, which is seven times four. And at the end of the list, at the end of the list of descending order of value, right? It starts off with gold and it ends with slaves and human lives. Right. That's well, a, I think that's yeah. an editorial comment. I think John adds oh, yeah, that yeah, yeah. is sure. slaves. Sure. That is human beings. Yeah, exactly. The souls of humans, because yeah, I think yeah. it's his editorial comment on it personally. Yeah. It makes good sense. All right. Yeah, yeah. So getting into the text, this this long tease, we've had like a 15 minute tease about talking about the this Holy Spirit. Great. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it honestly, it is. it's like, let's just go this direction. Yeah, but we don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. So we're uh, <laughs> sorry, it's a Bible joke. A bi- dad Bible joke. <laughs> and I had a glass of water in my mouth. And <laughs> exactly. I almost lost it too. <laughs> that was almost good. Yeah. Um, so we, we've spent time talking about how the book of Revelation is about Jesus. And that's not our theory. Like John tells us that to start off, you know, first three words, it's, a, it's about Jesus Christ. Um, and, you know, you can't get through chapters four and five without realizing like a high view of the father, high view of, of the son. And so we don't like explicitly see this Trinitarian connection, but we would still see that the, the Holy Spirit is there. It's just, is it maybe that we don't know how to look for the spirit or, you know, it's not popping out as overtly as father and son are. What, what do we do with that, with just understanding and, and seeing the role of the spirit through the book? Yeah, I mean, I think in some respects, um, I've loved studying this and looking at this because I think the spirit is really far more prevalent in Revelation than we than right, we good, see. Good, good. But okay. part of it is that I mean, that's the nature of the spirit, right? Mm-hmm. He is self-effacing. He does not mm-hmm. point or draw attention to himself. He is pointing to the sun, and I personally think that that's what's going on in Revelation twelve and thirteen, where you have the dragon, which is a parody of God the Father. You have the beast from the sea, which is a parody of God, the son. And then you have the beast from the land, which is a parody of the spirit, mm-hmm. God, the spirit, because the beast from the land is getting people to worship the beast from the sea. Right. And so right. I think all of that is parodying the triune God. But if you look even there, the beast from the land is self-effacing. It's pointing mm-hmm. people to the beast from the sea, which, right. again, it's a parody. It's a horrific parody. But I think it really helps us to realize that. It, the the spirit does not call attention to himself mm. good, and so good. that is would be consistent with the fact that we don't always see him as directly in revelation so can you give us a, then a big picture of the role of the holy spirit in the book of revelation then i mean he's there uh he's not self-effacing but it's about jesus and jesus is front and center but what's the role of the holy spirit just kind of as a big picture and then we'll look at some more texts and specifically 
Yeah. Um, I guess there's a couple of things. I'm maybe jumping around a little bit, but uh, in Revelation 19, 10, where you have this, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. Right. Um, I think really in many respects, the spirit is absolutely inextricably woven into the revelation about Jesus Christ. So if, yes, it, John one, I mean, uh, Revelation one, one talks right away about the revelation of Jesus Christ. And you can take that as the revelation about Jesus Christ right. or the revelation from Jesus Christ. Either way, I think it's both, but it's clearly that Jesus, the lamb is going to be centered in revelation, but all throughout that, you're getting this indication that the role of the Holy Spirit is to bring about that testimony, is to bring about that revelation. So I would say the whole question of the very revelation itself is infused with the Spirit, is, is would be impossible apart from the Spirit. So we discussed last week on our episode, the introduction of the book of Revelation, verse the first eight verses, the prologue, whatever you want to call it. And that John begins by saying, you know, it, it's from the one who is, who was, and who is to come. That's the Father. The seven spirits who are before his throne, that's in Revelation 1, 4. And then verse 5, and from Jesus Christ. And that seems to be a Trinitarian statement with the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. But is do you think that is the Spirit then, the seven spirits who are before the throne? And how do you understand that? Yeah, I do, personally. I know there's a lot of discussion. Um, the, the main avenues are that it's somehow the angels of the presence. Mm-hmm. Raphael and Uriel and some of the other ones that you find in apocalyptic literature. I'm not buying that one particularly. I mean, I know that David De Silva kind of what he says it could be both. Um, he resorts back to, I can't remember the sixth century person that he, he cites as in support of that. I'm not sure that it needs to be both necessarily. And right. here's kind of where I go is that I think John uses a lot of allusions to the old Testament where he's actually interpreting those original texts so it's not just that he's using an illusion he wants us to go back to zechariah 4 he's actually interpreting the intent i would say of zechariah 4 and i think what zechariah 4 is doing with the seven branched lampstand is anticipating the holy spirit okay good and so what john is doing is he's not just alluding he's appropriating that illusion and putting it in a trinitarian context to help us to see that zechariah 4 was pointing to the spirit i was just going to read zechariah 4 for a second because there's a key reference in zechariah 4 um, verse 6 of course which says uh, that it's not by might nor by power but by my spirit says the lord of hosts and that's this fundamental nature of zechariah 4 and zechariah 4 obviously is very central to that yeah, I mean, again, I, I think in so many ways that that fits in so well to the message in Revelation, right. because if you think about like just the throne room where you get and the, the throne room uh, scene in four and five is absolutely critiquing the Roman Empire and the, the mm-hmm. emperor's throne. But when you get to John hearing, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah and what he sees is the slain lamb. Exactly. In many respects, that's that's the heart of the, even that citation from Zechariah, because what he's saying is the Romans got their power by killing, right? by taking, by right. illegitimately, sacri- I don't even want to use the word sacrifice, but killing right. and uh, conquering peoples, whereas the legitimate one on the throne is the one who gave his life. Exactly. Amen. And so it, the parallel would be not by power, not by might, but by the spirit. And I think that's coursing through all of Revelation, that it is the spirit and the work of the spirit 
and through the lamb. I mean, but it is fundamentally opposed to any human conception of power, any human conception of empire, any of those things. Hey, everyone. We want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge. And this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind the scenes access, but we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. So then do you understand the seven spirits in in chapter one, verse four, to be like the sevenfold spirit, as I think some translations might try to do? Or how do you understand the reference to the seven spirits. Is it just, is this the number seven, just a symbolic number because seven represents perfection totality. It's the perfect spirit. Uh, or do you see an allusion to Isaiah 11? Uh, yeah, both. I mean, I like okay. all of those. And I, what I would say is that again, I think sometimes uh, what I've come to appreciate is the symbolic language in revelation is describing reality. Mm-hmm. It's not a propositional statement. So, you know, you can have a propositional statement that today is Wednesday and that's true and only true if today is actually Wednesday. Mm-hmm. But instead, the symbolic language in Revelation is describing reality. Mm-hmm. So when John has an illusion and he says the seven spirits, does he have a Isaiah in mind? Does he have Zechariah in mind? Yes, I think mm-hmm. all of them. And I think that's the nature of the elusive language is that he's drawing upon this richness so the number seven, yes, it, it could be the sevenfold spirit in Isaiah 11, but it's also seven is complete. Obviously, we know that. And Revelation is completely structured around sevens everywhere. But I think what it's saying is this this is the complete spirit, the perfect spirit. Um, mm-hmm. And so, again, but, I, but John doesn't, I guess I'll say it this way. Sometimes I think interpreters want to really nail John down and mm-hmm. say, what is going on with the seven spirits? I think John is much more organic, much more just saying, let me let me draw all of these things together in this really rich, rich, thick symbolism that I'm going to apply to the Holy Spirit. Dana, let's go to chapter four then in the book of Revelation. And this is the throne room scene that you were discussing already now. And it says that, you know, there's one sitting on the throne in verses two and three. It doesn't describe the one on the, sitting on the throne. It just describes the aura kind of around him, which is interesting because in chapter 22, we see his face, right? So there's this transition in the story that's taking place there. But then it says around the throne, verse four, were 24 thrones. And then in verse five, it says, from the throne came flash of lightning, sounds, peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Do you see that as a reference to the Holy Spirit there, or is that something different? Is that a reference back to one four, or is that something different? Yeah, I, I personally do. I mean, this is where it's the most overlap with the idea of the angels of the presence, I think, mm-hmm. because you get kind of the heavenly council, the heavenly mm-hmm. throne room scene. And I think that's, here's where I would say it's probably more in John's thinking to have this kind of allusion back to that. But I guess what I would also say is that, again, John is trying to describe something that is transcendent. Mm -hmm. And so he's using symbolic language to describe something that cannot be perceived by our own, our our limited human perceptions. He has to describe it. So I would say, is it possible that the angels of the presence are actually anticipating the role of the Holy Spirit? 
I mean, I want to be careful on that because right, okay. some people are pretty happy to just say the angels and the spirit can be interchangeable. Mm-hmm. Revelation it makes a pretty clear distinction between angels mm-hmm. and the spirits. Right, so right. I'm not suggesting that there's an overlap, but if it's an allusion to this idea of the holy ones in God's presence, mm. sure. But I don't, I don't think it's, I think you kind of have to land the plane, actually, because mm-hmm. I don't think that Revelation makes a di- uh, blurs the distinction between angels and the spirits. Okay, so one more, then I'll let Vinny jump in after this. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, it says, I saw a lamb as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So now, especially since the seven spirits are sent out into the earth, do you see that then as a more specific allusion to the Holy Spirit? Or are you Absolutely. still thinking it could be more... Okay. No, absolutely. And and if I can just draw upon Johannine theology, I would say this is kind of the idea of the paraclete. Right. That Jesus mm. says, it's to your advantage that I go because I will send the paraclete, the counselor, the comforter, the advisor, yeah. the advocate, however you want to translate yeah. that. And so I really do think that this is it. So how is it that we experience exactly. the lamb? Because the lamb is enthroned, right. bodily resurrected, enthroned. At the right hand of God, how do we experience his presence? It's through the Holy Spirit. So I would take that as kind of the eyes, uh, you know, the eyes indicating omniscience and and kind of, you know, the the spirit mm-hmm. being available everywhere. I don't mean it. I didn't, I'm not trying to suggest the spirits in everything, but I mean, right. you know what I'm saying? in the omnipresence yeah. of it, omnipresence. right? Omnipresence. Yeah. Omnipresence. Yeah. That's okay. great. All right. Very good. Okay. All right. Good. As we continue to look at other ways that the spirit is mentioned, there's a phrase that happens in chapter one, chapter four, chapter 17, and chapter 21, in which John says, I was in the spirit. Uh, I, th- I think, Rob, you describe it uh, in your commentary. I've, I've seen rough drafts where it's uh, the, this is kind of separating the different scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that, is that you refer to it as the scenes, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and so th- th- for him, for Rob, this is kind of like a, a marker of structure of the book. How do you understand uh, that phrase and the role it plays and yeah, what's happening I mean, with the spirit in that? Right, right. Um, I guess I, I think the structure thing works, to be honest, mm-hmm. because you do get the first reference in chapter one that kind of governs one through three. Right. Chapter four, if you take the seals in chapter five as also introducing the seals, trumpets, and bowls, that gets you all the way through end of 16. Right. The reference in chapter 17 is going to be, I think, covering 17 to 20, where you have really the judgment of God, the eradication of evil, and then the in the spirit in 21, um, it doesn't quite capture the, the heavenly Jerusalem coming down, but it does capture the description, the expansion. Um, and that would take you through the end. So I do think I, I think there's a lot to that idea of the structure. Absolutely. I think in many respects, what John is saying also is that to be in the spirit, I take this as really worship that he was worshiping on the lord's day so Mm. he's you know he's not trying to have some kind of trance or vision um it's not indigestion as some people have suggested Mm -hmm. that really yeah this is why he saw those things you know be careful what you eat before you go to sleep it's that late night pizza pizza. it'll get you every time Um, (laughs) but i I don't think it's i I think it's just that it's worship and somehow The, again, how is John going to see the transcendent realm? It's only going to be through the spirit. There's no other way to perceive the transcendent realm. 
Right. So hmm. segue for a second. So Ian Paul, a friend of ours, mm -hmm. uh, says that John did not actually have a visionary experience. He's just using a visionary, um, what's the word I want, the genre of a visionary experience to describe it. So you think he's actually having a visionary experience? I do. I mean, I I, I, yeah. I think, I don't so, know what that looks like. You know, yeah. I mean, if you go to Patmos and you look at the grotto, he's, he's kind of like, you know, <laughs> his magic pen writing away and he's kind of not present. I don't think it's that. Yeah, yeah I, think, I, I agree. I think it's a little bit both. I mean, I think the way that I describe it is that I think all of the prophets saw something mm -hmm. like Ezekiel, you know, Isaiah, they saw something. Right, right. And then they had to use their human language, their exactly. human experience to describe it. So right, right. John saw something mm -hmm. and then he's using his first century realities, his first century language, his understanding of apocalyptic writings right. to describe that. So it's both, you know, it's kind of yeah. that idea of concursus. I mean, there's something that the spirit gave him. I, I can't discount a visionary experience. So now let's go to chat to the seven messages in Revelation chapters two and three, that very that first scene that uh, John's uh, on Patmos told to write to the seven churches. Each one of the seven messages ends with this phrase, then him who hear what the spirit says to the churches. What do you think is the significance of this for understanding our role of the whole, the role of the Holy spirit in the book of revelation? Well, this is kind of fun. Um, and I, I'm going to draw a little bit on Hebrews here because, and this is not, I'm not the first person to come up with this. So this I'm tapping into something that's been yeah, yeah. discussed by a number of people. But if you look at, um, so the, the, in uh, Hebrews, you have speaking verbs always. So mm -hmm. uh, like Paul will say it is written, but the author of Hebrews always says, as God says, as the mm -hmm. spirit says, and then, so it's always a speaking context. And so in uh, Hebrews, you have the father and the son are basically speaking to each other. Mm. And then the spirit is speaking to the audience. Mm. And so in a sense, I think that's what's going on here is that in uh, this is where you have very, very clear reference to the spirit singular, mm -hmm. but it is the spirit appropriating, taking the words of Jesus and applying them to each of the individual congregations, each of the churches. And so I think in many respects, like the other places where you have the seven spirits, those are descriptive of either the Trinity in the opening statements or the the throne room scene in Revelation 4 and 5. But in Revelation 2 and 3, you have very clearly the words of Jesus are now being spoken to the audience right. and applied. And I love it because, you know, I, when I'm teaching this, I always tell people, notice that every, every church is invited, is actually commanded to eavesdrop on every other church. Mm. <laughs> And if you've been in ministry long enough, you're going to go through every single one of these situations. Mm -hmm. So that's why we need to eavesdrop. We have to listen to the messages to every church, even if one maybe is more relevant to us at a particular time. We still have to hear it because this is what the spirit is saying to the universal church. Yeah, yeah. Because each one of the messages ends with, I think Dan is alluding to here, is that it says what the spirit says to the church as it's plural, even though it's, it's plural, even though each one of the churches is being addressed as Ephesus and Laodicea, et cetera. Very good. That's why I take the eavesdropping, the command to eavesdrop. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. We get to read everybody's mail because it's our mail too. Okay. <laughs> nice. So speaking about the spirit speaking, there's, there's a couple instances in chapter 14 and then chapter 22 where the spirit is the one speaking uh so is would we also say that this is the holy spirit you know the person of the holy spirit speaking 
Yeah, I mean, I I do. The one in chapter 14 is the second of seven Beatitudes, seven blessing mm-hmm. statements. Um, I think, yeah, it's it basically says, you know, so blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now, uh, die in the Lord from now on. And then the spirit affirms this, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. I kind of would say um, that this is another example of the spirit confirming mm-hmm. um, a truth, kind of a prophetic utterance that's being confirmed. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one's a little bit maybe, let, let me let me uh, go this direction. That one's a little bit less clear. And there are some people who make a parallel to chapter 16, where you have a heavenly voice that's not the spirit, but they're trying to make a parallel between those. I mean, I'm not sure I would argue too strongly on this one, but I think the reference to the spirit is again in line with this idea that the 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 force, the presence behind all revelation in the book of Revelation is the Holy Spirit. But that one is a little bit more ambiguous, I think. Couldn't we though say, Dana, that really part of our problem here in this conversation is that we're making too great a distinction between the persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. That, Absolutely. Because what you see in the seven messages in most red letter Bibles, they're in red letters. Mm-hmm. And yet it ends with, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Like, wait a minute, this is red letters. The Spirit's not. So it's obviously the Spirit speaking through Jesus. Absolutely. And so Absolutely. even when you have chapter 14, verse 13, which one the verse that Dana just read there, it, it doesn't have to be this great line of demarcation as though One's the spirit talking, and then Jesus mm-hmm. talks later. It could be Jesus speaking and the words being attributed to the spirit. Yeah, and and the thing is, is what's the voice from the throne? I mean, again, could yes, it be yeah, yeah. that it's the spirit who is helping to articulate the voice of God, right. the Father? I mean, I, I, I agree with you 100%. We can't parse this out too much. I do think kind of in a general sense, though, what I would say is the way that we as redeemed human beings can experience God's presence and hear his voice is only through the spirit. I, mm-hmm. I would mm-hmm. want to mm-hmm. say it that way. That again, if we think about the father sending the son and the spirit applying the work of the son to believers, right, right. then in that larger kind of category, I would say this is how we experience the presence of God is through exactly. the spirit. It's a triune presence of God, but we experience it through the spirit. Mm-hmm. Well, and also as you read the whole context of the book itself, you you know, each one of these messages ends with it's what the spirit is saying to the churches, but it's also the message that is coming from Jesus. Right. But you read the very first line of the entire uh, book, you know, one one. It's the message that God gave him, right. and so it's 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 all three working together it, anyway. It, 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 absolutely, absolutely. We hope you're enjoying the podcast, and we want to remind you that everything we do at Determined Truth, the podcast, Rob's blog, and our YouTube channel, is available on the Determined Truth app. Directions on how to download the app is available in the show notes and on the DeterminedTruth.com website. Just click on the app tab. All right, so let's go now. Revelation 19, this is a more complicated one, but you referred to it earlier. Revelation 19, verse 10. Revelation 19, verse 10 says, I fell down at the feet to worship this angel. And the angelic being says, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Can you unpack that? What's what, what's he referring to there in terms of the spirit and what does he mean by that? Yeah, well, I mean, I won't get into the Greek, but if there's a bunch of genitival constructions there and there's like multiple permutations that you can think about, is it subjective here, objective here, back and forth? Um, so there's lots of interpretive issues that go on. 
is it the testimony that Jesus gives? Right. Is it the testimony about Jesus? Is mm. the spirit the essence of the prophetic activity? I mean, there's just all kinds of things that are going on here. I think what I would say is you could take spirit as in a very generic sense and just kind of say that it's the testimony about, I'm going to say the testimony about Jesus, but it, that doesn't exclude the testimony from Jesus. But it, it is right. It's the testimony of Jesus' lived reality. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I guess what I would just say, though, is that even if you don't want to take it as the, the Holy Spirit, I think, let me say it this way. I, again, I'm going to go Johannine big, but in First Johannine, John... just for the listeners, just is reference to John, who's this author of the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and, and the Book of Revelation. We call that the Johannine literature. So, so yeah. sorry about that. No, you're fine. But, you're fine. You're um, no, so if I go to 1st John, it's the Spirit that enables one to make the right yeah, claims yeah. about Jesus. Right. So no one can deny the reality, the truth about Jesus, apart with, and they have the spirit. That's not possible. But it is the spirit that enables somebody to make correct affirmations correct. about Jesus coming in the flesh, about Jesus being the Lord. So if I can draw upon that, I think that's what's going on here is to mm -hmm. say that the true prophetic utterances, even if we go back through all of the prophets, they they are only able, the spirit comes upon the prophet for a particular season, and they are only able to utter truth because of the indwelling or not the indwelling, not in the prophet. Sorry, yeah, I, yeah. I think very clearly that the indwelling can only happen after Pentecost. But prior to that, the spirit coming upon a prophet, they would not be able to give prophetic utterances apart from the presence of the spirit. Hmm. Now, when we're talking about the testimony of Jesus. It's not possible to make affirmations about the truth of the person and work of Jesus apart from the Spirit. So that's how I would put those together. Which makes the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit vital to the book of Revelation. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So as the song goes, I have a spirit, the spirit of life flowing out of me or the river of life flowing out of me. Right. But 22, sorry, it's another bad dad joke. Uh, uh, 22 starts off with the river of life coming from the throne. And, you know, in the throne, you have the. the Why don't you read that verse? Should we read that text? Yeah. yeah read it. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side, wherever the. The side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding each month. So you obviously have the one seated on the throne and the lamb, you have father and son sitting there. Is, should we interpret the river of life as being the Holy Spirit? I think this is the way the, the Orthodox Church uses this as a way to affirm that the spirit proceeds from the father and son, which might be contrary to the Nicene Creed, but uh, what's, you know, this, these are theological issues at this point. I don't know if, how, how much we want to parse that out, but where, where do you... Uh, how do you understand that? Yeah, I, I don't think the intent of the imagery there is to uh, necessarily affirm how we understand the profession, procession of the spirit. I think kind of that the orthodox, the, the tight orthodox uh, interpretation of that is probably going a little bit too literalistic on the text in my mm -hmm. mind. Um, but the imagery, absolutely, the, the flowing river is the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. Yeah. I would say it this way is that we're so there's. In the Old Testament, there are a couple of ways that we can see the Spirit. There, there are numerous ways, but one way is the Spirit is always associated with bringing forth life. And so you see, again, like Genesis 1, where you get the Spirit hovering over the deeps. 
and bringing forth life where there was no life. So this kind of idea of life giving water after the fall is uh, ambiguous as a symbol. So the flood is judgment, but then you have other places where you have living water Mm -hmm. that is life. And so I think in the context of Revelation, that's why that little comment at the beginning of Revelation 21, that he sees the new heavens and the new earth, and there is no more sea, S-E-A. What I think he's saying there is that is the sea there is a reference to evil, a symbol of evil, a symbol of death, because so many people died in the sea and so many, you know, I mean, again, the, the flood imagery, all that kind of stuff, that's gone. So now when we get to Revelation 22, water can only be positive. It's it's only a positive image. Mm-hmm. And it is this idea of uh, that could take us back to John's gospel about the living water. John 4, we have multiple places where we're having the mm-hmm. spirit being associated with living water. So by the time we get to Revelation 22 and we see that coming out, yes, absolutely, that's the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's Eden language, of course, also, right? It's Absolutely. the river It's the river that, that flows out of Eden, of course. It flows out of Jesus' side when he's on the cross and, and, and pierced because uh, Jesus is the source Absolutely. of the river. I, if you would have asked me, woman, I would have given you living water and you'd never thirst again. So um, excellent. And then in John 7, where you get another discussion of the living water. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah I and, and actually what's so interesting is that it's, I think even in John's gospel, when he's trying to talk about the spirit, I think the idea of flowing pure life-giving water is what he's using to describe the spirit in John's Absolutely. Gospel. Yeah, yeah. I've said before, I don't know what you think about this, Danica, you're, is that the Holy Spirit is as important, if not more important in the gospel of John than even Jesus is, because Jesus is pointing to the spirit all along. And by the time you get to chapter 13, it's, a, it's about the Holy Spirit. He washed the disciples' feet, and it's about the spirit. So, yeah. 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 Excellent. As long as I'm going to jump in here, there's another way that I get most excited about the spirit's presence in 21 and 22. Mm. And I'm not sure if you were going to ask this, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the glory because I think that's where it's really overlooked. Mm. And so, as I said, in the old Testament, you get the spirit associated with revelation So the spirit coming upon a prophet to reveal something, you get the spirit associated with life, but you also get these clear indications of the spirit filling the the tabernacle or filling, Mm. and particularly the temple, filling the temple. And so if you trace kind of the temple theme, again, John's gospel is pivotal here, where in John 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple, the one we can see with stones. And I will rebuild it in three days. He's obviously talking about himself as being the temple. Mm -hmm. But then you get later New Testament writers, Paul and Peter in particular, describing believers as uh, as being the temple that God is constructing. So we are the temple of God. We are that space. And so when John says in Revelation 21 and 22 that he did not see a temple. Right. Mm -hmm. What I would really strongly suggest is that the temple is the redeemed people of God Mm -hmm. and the spirit is dwelling in them as Mm -hmm. the glory of God. And so really in that respect, if you see the glory filling the new Jerusalem, Mm -hmm. that's redeemed humanity. And the spirit Mm -hmm. then is everywhere. So again, if we're just looking at, you know, Revelation tells us the one on the throne and the lamb. And so many people will say, well, where's the spirit? We're not, if you were asking that question, we're not looking in the right place because mm. the spirit is everywhere. 
The Spirit is absolutely infusing all of the new creation through mm. the glory dwelling in the, the glory that's, let me say this, I guess, that is restored to humanity. And where I'm getting that from is Psalm 8 talks about when David is reflecting back on the original intent for humanity, he talks about the dominion and all those things, but mm -hmm. he talks about being crowned with glory. Mm. There was a glory that was intended for humanity that was forfeited in the fall. So I would make the case that when we get to Revelation 21 and 22, where you see this, the glory filling the new Jerusalem, that is the glory restored to redeemed humanity. Mm. It's original intention to be this glorious part of God's creation. Mm -hmm. Mm. That was my next question. So you you stole it. So, but that's okay. <laughs> so we'll go on. I'll just edit it later and, and add a question. No. Uh, uh, so you see then the Holy Spirit as this infusing of the new Jerusalem. Yeah. One may, this might, I mean, I'm making a connection in my mind that may not be clear to everybody. So let me say it this way. Um, you know, we, at a popular level, we can often say things like the Holy Spirit dwells in me. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's true. But I think there's a better way to think about it. And I think one that's a little bit more biblically based. And that yeah. is in Acts 2 at Pentecost, you have the people of God, not all the people of God. We know that there are more than 120 believers at that point in time. But you have the people of God assembled and the spirit comes upon the people of God. Yeah. And actually, Luke makes it pretty clear because I think he's drawing upon the baptism of Jesus, where you have Jesus and the spirit comes upon Jesus in a bodily form. A, a physical manifestation is mm -hmm. the dove. And then you have the body of Christ in Acts 2, and the spirit comes upon and now enters into the body of Christ with a physical manifestation, the flames of tongues and mm -hmm. flames and tongues, flames of fire and tongues. We'll get it. But the reason why I'm saying that is that I think if we want to think biblically about this. The spirit dwells in the body of Christ. And when we become believers, we are placed into the body of Christ, but the spirit dwells within the body of Christ collectively, mm -hmm. which is why that even has something to do with the idea of being in the spirit. Mm -hmm. But that's where we can be in the spiritual realms or be connected to each other spiritually because the spirit dwells collectively in the body of Christ, as opposed to thinking about the spirit dwells in me individually, you individually. No, we're much, we're part of something much bigger, the body of Christ. Hmm. And that's what I think you're seeing in revelation 21 and 22, you get redeemed humanity in the presence of God restored to that place that was broken by the fall. And now you have the spirit indwelling and infusing that organic connection of the redeemed humanity. Uh, body of Christ, the redeemed, mm -hmm. redeemed humanity. And then, so as a like point of application, I think if I can say it this way and, and tell me what you think, I'd say twofold. One, building off what you just said there, we would say, and that's why Paul will go on and say, therefore be holy, because you are the place of God's temple, the presence of the Holy Spirit amongst you, and this call for holiness. As far as the book of Revelation is concerned, it would be hang in there, don't give into Roman imperialism. Don't give. Don't assimilate into Rome for the sake of wealth or power or prosperity or comfort and security or to escape persecution. Instead, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit says the Lord. We can endure and we can overcome. And listen, what the Spirit says to the churches. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess there's two ways um, that I could go on this. One is kind of a little uh, cheesy, I guess. Um, I joke with my students that after all is said and done, there's a two word summary for revelation. The whole thing can be boiled down to two words. God wins. Mm. 
And when you kind of understand that God wins, then what that does is if you're persecuted, then that's huge encouragement, huge encouragement. If you're complacent, that's a real warning. Right, right. God wins. You're not going to get away with it. Right. Now, that's kind of a cheesy, cutesy little way to say it. But I would say kind of to what you were just saying, I think what Revelation is doing is that vision of the transcendent reality, which I always tell my students, that transcendent reality is more real than the reality of what we're living in now. Exactly. That when we get a hold of that and we understand the glory, the holiness, that vision is so compelling Mm -hmm. that we don't want to be complacent. We don't want to participate in that system. Because I think that when you tell people to not do something, of course, our human nature is to do it. So I think what actually works much better is to replace or reframe our thinking into something that is so much more glorious, so much more holy, so much more compelling that why would we want to settle for this counterfeit narrative? It's so, it's so little, it's so small, it's so diminished compared to what God is doing. It's also so destructive. Yes. Right. And so damaging. Hey, anything that we missed? That you want to, okay, hey, you guys didn't ask about this or discuss this, or I want to reemphasize this or uh, anything at all? Um, I, not that I can think of. I okay. mean, it's just, it's such a great topic to think about. And mm-hmm. I think there is a sense, I, again, I think there is a sense in which we are missing the spirit in Revelation because we don't know where to look. Okay. Well, let me, let me ask this question because yeah. you, you had opened up this whole conversation with your elevator pitch on how to view the the spirit and revelation. So let's, let's do our own inclusio and maybe do that again, but from a different standpoint. So uh, I I teach in the local church primarily. And so we'll, you know, I'll teach hermeneutic classes and one of the weeks is always going to be how to read revelation. And so I'll make, I'll make the point saying, Hey, anytime any of us buy a new car and we're contemplating that new car uh, and we're thinking, okay, are we going to buy a white Camry? Well, lo and behold, the white Camry is showing up all over town that week. Like all the white, all the white Camrys from your region are all driving in your town and you're seeing them because that's what's on our mind. So one of the corrections I make is if we've been told that the revelation is about the end of the world, that's how we're going to read it. And so the first thing is to, to try to correct people and say, hey, no, it's about Jesus. And so read the book, but with this in mind, and we'll talk about how, how it's about Jesus being faithful, about Jesus overcoming, about how he's overcoming, about his, you know, those sorts of things. And so you're, you're framing how to read the book in light of Jesus. And so that, like, even in my own congregation, that's been helpful in terms of how to see it, not about this end of the world event, but about Christ. In the same way, then, in light of this conversation, what are the ways that you would encourage folks to read Revelation in light of the spirit and say, and watch for the spirit doing this. This is the type of thing the spirit is doing. Don't let this pass by, even though it's not going to be completely in your face and it's not going to be saying, now I am the spirit and I am doing this. It's a little behind the scenes. So what do we need to watch for? I'm still back on the Camry because I have a 17 year old Corolla. (laughs) So I haven't thought about a new car in a long time, obviously. I'm going to ruin your weekend now, huh? That's right. Um, (laughs) I think, I think, Hmm, That's a really good question. I think what I would say is that revelation is about a glory that we can only imagine. Mm. When I tell my students this, I always kind of say, you know, we've all had the experience where we've read the book and then we saw the movie and we were really disappointed. (laughs) And I just tell people, we will never be disappointed. We've read the book and we will never be disappointed Mm. at Mm. what we see. 
And so what I would say the compelling vision is that, um, I guess I'll say it this way, and and this is really, I think, what the spirit is inviting us to do, but we actually don't use our imaginations the way that previous mm. generations did mm-hmm. because we live in such a visual world. We have movies. Okay. And I, I, I think film is great. I'm not, I'm not against this, mm-hmm. but we are visually bombarded, which means our imaginations are not used very much. Mm. And so I encourage people to revelation is an invitation through the spirit to imagine something that is everything that you're longing for. I mean, you, you read revelation 21 or even at the end of chapter seven, where you get that mm-hmm. people wipe away every tear. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more dying. Will we see perfect justice, actually perfect justice? Mm-hmm. We cannot out imagine that. Mm-hmm. And so I think really the role that we have is to work, is to allow the Holy Spirit to really develop and expand our imaginations to really think what will it be like to be in a world where there is no injustice mm-hmm. where there are no tears where there is no dying and that to me is i mean what a great way to spend our time what a great thing to do with our neural pathways to develop all these wonderful connections of mm-hmm. what the spirit is doing and will be doing in and through us can I add to that? Which, by the way, your your analogy doesn't work for me because I can't pay attention to books because of my ADD. So I've watched the movies and I'm like, oh, cool! I finally know what the book's yeah, about. Yep. Um, but but that's that's just me and uh, not 99 of the people. But on the kind of t- taking what you just said, kind of the, to the negative side, and that is that allowing the Spirit of God to give us a new way of looking at the world, also at empire. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. more, more critically, because I think that's what John's trying to do and, and the Spirit's trying to do in the book of Revelation, say you need to critically evaluate Caesar's not really the one on the throne, it's really the Father. And I think what we said at the beginning of this is that we've been deluded by thinking that whether it's America or, or, or prosperity or whatever, that that really actually is, from, is divine and say, no, let's look at this through kingdom eyes now and kingdom perspectives. And the reality is that Christ brings true justice and empires bring injustice. And so where do we see injustice? Doesn't mean it's always bad, but where do we see injustice in the empire? And let's call that out. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, I mean, kind of going back to what I was saying a minute ago, I think we settle um, Mm. too easily for the counterfeit. Mm -hmm. And we think the counterfeit is pretty good. And I think that's really what's the the real danger is that, again, I mean, I, I am, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I get frustrated sometimes when people feel or make the claim that if you're patriotic, you can't be critical. Mm-hmm. And I think right. that's really wrong. Yeah. I mean, having spent time in former communist countries, I'm pretty thankful for my U.S. passport. Yeah, right. you know, I've been pretty happy to have that and my ticket out when other people couldn't get out. But on the other hand, I think that to really love something is to be very aware and critical of what it can and can't do. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of times Christians in this country are not as aware of the limitations. And I think many Christians are settling for something that is so much less glorious than what God has. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that I don't, you know, I'm not happy to be in the United States. I mean, I'm not saying it that way. I'm just saying that I don't want to settle short. Right. For the glorious thing that God is doing. And I think that's the real danger too, is to mm-hmm. think this is it. And then to have such a diminished understanding of, of the glorious thing that God is doing. Now I could go much further and even say revelation then helps us to critique the very unjust inglorious mm-hmm. things that are happening in the United States. The United States has perpetrated. I mean, you can go that direction as well. Right. 
Excellent. Hey, anything we missed? We're good. I think this we're good. Fantastic. Thank oh, you so, so good. much. Yeah. Good. Good. It's been fun. I've been, I've enjoyed it. Good. Good. Hey, Dana, thanks so much for hanging out uh, with us today. Yeah. This has seriously been so, uh, I don't know, illuminating and just uh, a pleasant experience. So uh, thank yeah. you so much for hanging out with us today. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. I was really, really happy to have this conversation and happy to be here. Awesome. All right, everyone. Hope you guys were blessed by this. We will catch you guys next time. I want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast, and we would love for you to share the work of Determined Truth with others. Please follow this podcast and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast. Then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people.